We're going to look more at uh, Matthew 16. Uh, Let me pray as we come to those verses together. Father God, thank you so much for the, the portrait we see painted of the Lord Jesus as we work through Matthew. And as we come to these great verses here, and as we consider who Jesus is, we pray, please, you would enlighten our hearts. We pray we would grasp more of the wonder of what it is to see Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of the living God. Amen. The, uh, the answer to some questions really matter, don't they? Uh, down on one knee, the next words you hear after this really matter. Will you marry me? The answer's life-changing, isn't it? Or for a jury, the moment they knew that was coming, what are they going to say? Guilty or not guilty? Or perhaps you've been in this situation. As you, you walk into the doctor's room... And you ask those questions that have caused sleepless nights. What are the test results? The answer to some questions really matter, don't they? And there is no bigger question than the one we come to today. If you've closed your Bibles, do open them up again. Do you see the question that Jesus poses to his disciples in verse 15? What about you? Who do you say I am? You see, the way we answer that question will shape all of our life. But the claim of the Bible is that it won't just shape shape life, it'll shape the life to come as well. So there is no more important question to consider, no more important answer to have. And we need then solid ground to stand on, don't we? We need ground that we can be on that we are sure is rock solid in our answer to that question. Uh, There's not a lack of options, is there? There's all sorts of options that you'll get to that question. Who who is Jesus? Well, there's the absurd. uh, I found found out this week, uh, a few years ago, people came out saying that he was a tin trader that came to Britain and he studied under the Druids. And we can discount that, can't we? There's not much behind that. Or how about this? Uh, In 1970, an archaeologist, John Allegro, wrote this book, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. If you're looking for a book to read about the cross coming up to Easter, I don't suggest you start with that one. But he spent decades of close study, decades of close study, and here's the conclusion he came to, that the New Testament was a way of perpetuating old fertility rites. Uh, And this is what he was sure, after decades of study, that Jesus was a metaphor and a mushroom. I mean, absurd, isn't it? We can, we can discount that pretty quickly. But what about, what about what other religions have to say? What about the Jehovah's Witness view that he, he's just a man, a created being, not the son of the living God? Or, or the answer you just get from most people on the street, well, look, a good guy did some good stuff, but, but, but not much more than that, is he? Well, what we see in Matthew 16 is the answer to the question of who Jesus is. And we are given rock-solid ground to stand on. So there's actually two questions we're going to consider. Here's the first. The first question is, who is Jesus? Uh, We're going to see that he is the longed-for king. Look down at verse 13. Jesus came up to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? He's, he's traveled up, he's gone about 25 miles northeast from the Sea of Galilee, and he's, he's come to this place, Caesarea Philippi. It's a beautiful spot, it's in the, the foothills of Mount Hermon. 
But it's not just a pleasant spot to be, to go and retreat with his disciples. It's a place of real political and religious significance. Herod had named it in honour of Augustus, the emperor, uh, who, who was a man who had godlike status. People considered there to be a grotto in the mountain that was the birthplace of the Greek god Pan. You see, here's a place that people travel to, to come and honour their gods. And Jesus says, who do you say I am? Who do people say I am? Well, there's no shortage of answers to the question, to, to the question then, was there? In verse 14, the disciples say, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. You see, the thing that all of those answers have in common is that there's still someone greater to come. All of those are, are, are people that point to someone else. They're, they're like the bridesmaid to the bride, the warm-up act to the headline. And then Jesus turns the question to the disciples. You see that in verse 15. What about you, he says? Who do you say I am? You see, Jesus isn't really interested in what other people think. He's interested in what you think. Maybe you've got some answers to that question. Who do people say I am? Well, some say this, some say that. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? What about you? Who do you say I am? Not what others say. Can I say it is the most important question you can consider. No more important question to think about than this. And Simon Peter responds. He, he, he jumps up in his response. I, I don't know if you find this. As you read about Peter in the Gospels, doesn't he come across a little bit like that child in class? He's a bit like this. Pick me, pick me. I, I, I've got the answer. Again and again, he's kind of the first one to jump up and, and, and say something. And here he is again, endearing old Peter, the first one to say something. And he says, oh, oh, oh I know that one. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Well, sometimes his answers, you think, oh, here he's spot on. And you can, it doesn't say it, but I would imagine there was this broad grin that came across Jesus' face as he says to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my, by my Father in heaven. See, this is who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, it seems to me that that word Messiah has kind of lost a bit of its weight of expectation. There's not the excitement that surrounds that word that there would have been for a first century Jew. You see, for for a first century Jew, there was a lifetime and a history of expectation behind that word. They had been waiting for as long as history is itself for this Messiah figure. Let me, let me just try and help us to see that. From the moment that Adam and Eve were in the garden and kicked out, there had been the wait for this one that would crush the snake. So Adam and Eve uh, had been deceived by their own sin, but deceived by a snake as well. And they're rightly punished and sent out of the garden. And yet Jesus made, uh, God makes this wonderful promise that he will send one who will crush the snake. One who will crush the snake and bring God's people back into the garden. And ever since Adam and Eve first came out, there's this longing for one to come who will crush the snake. And he will bring them back into the garden, a place of peace and security and safety and with their God face to face. This, 
this longed-for king, this Messiah figure, who would crush the snake and bring them back into the garden. And the Jews have been waiting since then for it. There have been kind of moments where they thought, is this it? As David came, I thought, is, is this the Messiah? Is this the one who's going to crush the snake? And then even better still, under Solomon, when, when things seem so great, is this the one? Is this the king? Is this the snake crusher? But it wasn't those men. They messed up, just like Adam had. They weren't the snake crusher. And you read on through the Old Testament, and the prophets keep on saying, he's coming. He's coming. This snake crusher, this promised king is coming, who will bring you back into the garden. And the Jews are waiting. And the Old Testament ends with them waiting still. When's he coming? And between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's, uh, uh, the, God's people are crushed by a man called Antiochus Epiphanes. There's the, the Maccabean revolt when uh, loads of Jews are killed and they are still waiting. When is this, this king going to come? When is the snake going to be crushed? When will we be back in the garden? And we start in the Gospels and we see the Jews again oppressed by a foreign empire, by the Romans. And they're crying out, when is this king coming? When will the one come who will crush the snake and bring us back to the garden? So you see, as Peter says, you are the Messiah. That is massive. We lose that a bit because we don't have that weight of expectation behind the word. But but Peter is saying, here he is. Here is the snake crusher. Here is the king we have been waiting for since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And you see, he is no human figure. He's not a John the Baptist or an Elijah or a Jeremiah. No, he is the son of the living God. You see, you and I still feel the crushing effects of living outside the garden. The point, the point we are in January, I guess it, for those of you that set New Year's resolutions, they've been broken already. Those things you hoped would be different about this year, they're not. They're still the same. You know those things that, that crush you, that weigh in on you? Those things that as you think about, your heart sinks? We all have those things, don't we? You see, those things are all things that are crushing effects of living outside the garden. And you see, here we see that Jesus is not just the longed-for king for the Jews... He is your longed-for king. And he is your longed-for king because he crushed the snake at the moment it seemed he was being most crushed. In his apparent failure and defeat on the cross, he rose again. He defeated death, he defeated sin, and he defeated the snake. And he says, come to me, I am your longed-for king. Enjoy coming back into the garden. Now, we're not there now, are we? We still feel the crushing effects of being outside the garden. But Jesus promises he will come again. And one day we will be back in the garden if we come to him. We will enjoy that. And even now, as we feel the effects of of being crushed by the snake and being outside the garden, as we come to Jesus, we do find comfort and peace. So who is Jesus? Well, he is, he is the Messiah. He is the longed-for king, but not just the Jews' longed-for king. He is your longed-for king. 
But I wonder, maybe there's still the question in your mind, well, how can I be sure? And Peter says he's, he's this long-for king. How can I be sure about that? How can I trust Peter? How can I be on any kind of solid ground in my answer to that? Well, see what Jesus says in, in verse 17. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You see, what we have here isn't just, isn't just Peter's opinion about who Jesus is, but this is revealed truth by the Father about who Jesus is. It has been revealed to Peter. So we're standing on solid ground as we say that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Peter, in a sense here, represents all the apostles. And, uh, and we see then in 17 to 20 who the apostles are. So the first question, who is Jesus? Well, he is the longed-for king. The second question, uh, who are the apostles? Well, we see in 17 to 20 they are the foundation of the church. Look down at uh, at verse 18. Jesus goes on. He says, And I tell you that you, Peter, sorry, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Well, those few words, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build it, have been the cause of endless controversy. There's no shortage of ink spilt on what's going on there. That the Roman Catholic position is that Peter is literally the rock. So from him comes a sole apostolic succession. He was the first Pope of Rome, and the church stands on each Pope since then. So the only church that can claim to be built on Peter, so only the church that can claim to be built on Peter is the true, true church. There seems to be at least a, a couple of problems with, with taking that view. First of all, Peter would be the first person that would say, don't come to me, don't, don't build, build the whole church literally on me. In 1 Peter, he says, come to him. That is the Lord Jesus. Come to him, the living stone, not come to me. So Peter would, would have something to say about that. And secondly, I, I, I think it's important that Peter's seen as representative of the apostles here. There's a sense in which he, he, he seems to be the spokesman for the apostles throughout, uh, throughout Matthew. So if you just flip back to, to Matthew 15 and verse 33. We see actually the disciples have already uh, recognized Jesus as, uh, as the, the, uh, the son of God. So, is it 1533? Sorry, 1433. Uh, 1533, and then those who were in the boat worshipped him, the disciples, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So the apostles have said already that Jesus is the Son of God. So it seems to be that here, Jesus, uh, that Peter, sorry, is representative for all of the apostles. They are collectively saying this. And so there's a danger then in the, the Roman Catholic view that, that Peter's isolated from all the other apostles. Here's what Uh, John Calvin had to say, the 16th uh, century reformer. It's a foolish inference of papists, those from the Roman Catholic Church, that Peter received the primacy and became the universal head of the church. So if we're not going to take the Roman Catholic position on this, then then what do we do? Well, there have been reactions 
that I think maybe have gone too far. So a lot of the reformers said, well, who's the rock? The rock is, it's not a person, but it's Peter's confession of faith. Or some have even wanted to say, well, the rock actually is Jesus. The problem, I think, with, with both of those other reactions is that they don't really do justice to the verse. Just look again at 18. The footnotes help slightly. And I tell you that you are Peter. And there's a little footnote down to the bottom. The Greek word for Peter means rock. And on this rock I will build my church. So there's a deliberate wordplay going on with Peter's name. Peter meaning rock and saying I will build this this church uh, on you. So how do we rightly understand it? Then if we we don't take the Catholic position or or we don't react saying it's Peter's confession of faith uh, or Jesus himself... Well, I think the answer is seeing that this isn't talking solely about Peter here. Peter is representative of the apostles as the foundation of the church. He's the building uh, that Jesus builds on him, uh, the church on himself and the apostles on the foundation. Just flick quickly over to Ephesians uh, chapter 2. I think Ephesians helps. So on page 1174. Ephesians chapter 2 and and verse 20. We'll read from 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone, the the apostles is the foundation. I don't know much about buildings, but I'm told to believe that the cornerstone, if you take it out, causes the whole building to fall. You see, the cornerstone of the church is Christ himself. And on that, the apostles are the foundation. The foundation in the sense in that they show us who Jesus is. You see, one of the other problems with the the Catholic view of of Peter being the rock is it seems to isolate what's going on in 18 and 19 from from what Peter has said about Jesus. See, Peter shows who Jesus is. Peter and the apostles are the confessing apostles. And they're the foundation in the sense that they reveal to us who Jesus is. So, so as we come to the apostles, we are on solid ground, rock-solid ground. And aren't we, aren't we crying out for certainty? We live in a world that's, that's post-truth and uh, post-modern, and, and we're crying out for, for truth. There's a lecturer at, um, at college that, that told a story a week or so ago, and he'd been uh, at a conference with other lecturers, and a Roman Catholic scholar had been said, what, what do you think it is? that evangelical faith has to offer. What is it that evangelical faith has to offer? And very quickly, the scholar came back and said, certainty. That is what evangelical faith has to offer. Certainty. Because we're crying out for it. We're crying out for, for, for standing on solid ground. So if you're here considering who Jesus is, then see that we have here certainty as to who he is. He is really the son of the living God. That is who he is. So I've just lost my pages in my notes slightly.
or maybe you, you, you'd echo Peter's confession. You'd, you'd say, yeah, I, I'm, I'm convinced about that. I'm convinced that he is the Messiah. I'm convinced that he, that he is the Son of God. Well, know that you are standing on solid ground. Because there are all sorts of things that, that shake us, aren't there? If you'd say that, if you'd echo that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, aren't, aren't there things that, that shake that confession on the outside and on the inside as, as you go out into a world that says, no, he's not. He's not really your longed-for king. You're not really the son of the living God. He's maybe a good guy, but, but nothing more than that. But not just shaken from the outside. We're shaken on the inside at times as well. Aren't there? Things happen and we find ourselves thinking, is he really that? Is he really my longed-for king? Is he really going to take me back to the garden? I'll keep standing on the solid foundation of the apostles. Do you notice how Jesus goes on in verse 18? And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The, the evil powers of this world are lined up against the church. Maybe you've, you've seen the film Lord of the Rings or, or better still read the book. There's this wonderful bit in, in the battle at Helm's Deep in, in, in the Twin Towers. And, and the orcs, these horrible, horrible uh, kind of bloodthirsty men are lined up. With, with wizard, wizard ceremony against the city. And, and you, you see in the film at least, children and, and mothers cowering inside as they hear the orcs beating their, their spears on the ground. Uh, uh, there's just general terror all around. And, uh, and then they charge and the battle goes on all night. And as you watch the film or read the book, you find yourself thinking, Who, who's going to overcome Who's going to win here? Are the good guys or the bad guys going to win this? Because it looks like it could go either way. And then in the film, there's this wonderful moment. uh, As you see Gandalf, Gandalf the Good, up on the the top of the mountain, looking down. Uh, It's at dawn and it's just getting light. And all of a sudden, everything goes quiet. It goes still as, as everyone looks up at Gandalf and his army behind him. And as Gandalf streams down the mountain, the light literally overwhelms the orcs and they are defeated. There is a sense in which that is just a little taste of how wonderful it will be when the Lord Jesus comes back. When all our enemies are, are defeated. It is no surprise we find our confession of Jesus shaken. We are in a spiritual battle. But Jesus says the church will not be overcome. It will not be snuffed out. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. And he goes on, I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You see, there's, there's a sense in which Peter and the apostles are the, the porters to God's kingdom. Their, their teaching opens wide the doors to God's kingdom. And we, we see that in, in Acts as we see Peter preaching to the Jews and, and he opens the door and, and many flood in as he preaches to Cornelius and, and other Gentiles in their house in Acts 11. The doors are opened and, and the way in is shown. Eternity's written on our hearts, isn't it? And I guess that's why we hate getting old. I'm 36 in March. I mean, that's not old. 
But actually, at theological college, it's definitely on the older end of things. Most of, most of the men and women there are, are late 20s, early 30s. Uh, and a couple of people have found out recently, I'm 36 in March, and it's a bit of a joke at the moment. Old man Pinto. Uh, and I'm happy to laugh along, but there's a little part of me inside thinks, I'm getting old. I'm going to be 36 in March. We, we don't like it, do we? We, we fight against ageing. Well, Peter and the apostles, in their teaching, say, look, here is the way to, the, to eternity. Come to their teaching as they open wide the gates to eternity. It's written on our hearts because we want to spend eternity with God. We don't like ageing. Very briefly, uh, let's, um, let's just consider what's going on in the second half of, of verse, uh, verse 19. Um, slightly strange at first, isn't it? Whatever you bound, bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, what's going on there? It, it can be translated, you see the footnote at the, be, at the bottom, where it says, uh, whatever uh, will be bound on earth will have been bound in heaven. Uh, and similarly with, with loose. That seems to, uh, to help us slightly. Uh, what's going on? Just briefly, um, it, it was thought that the, the, the rabbis were the ones who, they were the ones who'd interpret the law. So they would say uh, what is forbidden, uh, that is what is bound, and they'd say what is permitted, what is, what is loosed. And it seems to be what's going on here is Jesus is saying the apostles show what is right behaviour, how we rightly understand the law. So in their teaching, they show what's permitted, that is what's least, uh, and what is uh, not permitted, what is bound. So as we come to their teaching, we see how it is to live the Christian life. What does that mean then? It's got to mean that we have a high view of what the apostles say, doesn't it? There's a bit of a trend, isn't there, to, to split Jesus from the apostles. Jesus, this great, wonderful teacher, and the apostles who, well, not so sure about them. Well, Jesus won't have that, will he? Because he says he has given to Peter and the apostles the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and their teaching shows what is permitted and what is not permitted. So have a high view of what the apostles teach. Don't drive a wedge between Jesus and them. So what, what have we seen? Well, we've seen the answer to a very important question. The most important question. Who is Jesus? Well, he is the longed-for king. Not just the Jews' longed-for king. He is your longed-for king who promises to bring you back to the garden to enjoy peace, safety, and the intimacy of being with God face to face. And who are the apostles? Well, the apostles are the foundation of the church. As we come to them in their teaching, we are on rock-solid ground as to who Jesus is. So come to them and be certain that they rightly show you who Jesus is. Let me pray. Father, thank you that as we come to these words, we come to the truth about Jesus. And we praise you that he is our longed-for king, the son of the living God. And we pray, please, that we would know that we can stand on that truth with great certainty. Amen.